0: Welcome to Season 4 of the Right Idea Podcast. I'm Kevin Nicholson, Volunteer President and CEO of No Better Friend Corp. The theme for this season is Fight for America. In this fourth episode of Season 4, we feature audio from our No Better Friend Corp forum on fighting critical race theory that we hosted in Green Bay in September of 2021. Today's episode features a deep dive into the history of critical race theory with Dr. James Lindsay. It's a great discussion, and I hope that you enjoy this is the right idea podcast. Hello, Green Bay. Um, I'm actually kind of falling in love with your state. by the way, I keep Kevin keeps bringing me up and I've, I was thinking about it while I was sitting over here and I thought, well, he hasn't brought me in the winter yet. Maybe that's maybe that's the problem. It's better. No. My family's from upstate New York. Don't even start, I know. So I'm supposed to give you the nuts and bolts of Critical Race Theory. I want to start a little nerdy for you. I'm sorry to get nerdy. I like to do it sometimes. But there's this idea in artificial intelligence research. It's called, it's got a silly name. It's called the Paperclip Maximizer. And what this is is a warning. So imagine you build a super powerful computer that can solve basically any problem. Super intelligent machine, like the Matrix super powerful computer that can answer any question. And it has a bad optimization function. In other words, somebody programs it to do something, it's really, really smart, but programs it to do something really, really stupid. Namely, make paper clips, as many paper clips as possible out of everything that you could possibly imagine making paper clips out of. And if it can't make a paper clip, it should make a machine to make more paper clips. And that's all it does. Now remember, this machine can solve virtually any problem. This is called a paper clip maximizer. Problem in, in, in artificial intelligence research. that says if you optimize your smart computer in a bad way, you're going to have a big problem on your hands because at first it's going to figure out how to get all the metal, and it's going to turn all the metal into paper clips. So there's not going to be any metal for cars. There's not going to be any metal for your roof. There's not going to be any, any metal for anything except paper clips. The next thing it's going to start to figure out how to do is turn all the plastic, all the hydrocarbons that you can, pot, all the oil, all the everything you could possibly imagine into paperclips. It's going to start carving rocks into paperclips. It's going to start figuring out how to use nuclear reactions to melt people down and turn them into paperclips. It's going to turn the whole planet into paperclips because it can solve virtually any problem. And the reason I'm bringing up this stupid paperclip maximizer problem to you from artificial intelligence is because I want to tell you that this is exactly how critical race theory thinks. This is exactly what critical race theory is. It is a perfect metaphor with the possible exception of it not being that smart. Critical race theory exists to do one thing and one thing only, which is to create more critical race theorists and to turn over institutions to create more critical race theorists. That's it. That's all it does. People ask all the time, what's their goal? What's the end game? Make more critical race theorists. Why? Well, why does the machine make more paper clips? That's all it does. It is designed to conquer every institution, whether a school, whether the law, whether the constitution itself, whether it's your workplace, the HR department, whether it's your church, whether it's your family. It conquers every institution and turns it into a machine to raise what they call a critical consciousness of race, which is to say to become a critical race theorist, which is to think about race the way critical race theorists think about race. So everything Matt just said to you about practical ways to fight back is spot on, and I want to really highlight the end of what he said is that these people will not let go easily they have one function and one function only if they have taken up the critical race theory religion and that is to make more critical race theorists so when we're talking about school boards it is to make critical race theorists out of your children it is to make them think about race this way it is to make them think about race this way through every subject in the school not just honest history what a lie not just English class, not just social studies where you think it might kind of show up. Oh, we're teaching about slavery. I just saw a tweet from Dr. Martin Luther King's youngest daughter saying that people who oppose critical race theory just don't want the history of slavery taught at all. And that's, that's all it comes down to. That's what she said. And then she said that she doesn't want to see any white people or anybody against critical race theory invoking her father's words against it ever again. And it's like, all I can do is shake my head. All they think about is creating more critical race theorists out of your children. So it's very important to understand they're not going to let go of this power easily. So when he said that you're going to get, you're going to see pushback, you are definitely going to see pushback. They will try to uh, insult you. They'll call you names. That's the least of your problems. You need to have some courage if you want to stand up to this. They will start to, if you look at some of the school districts like in Virginia, in Loudoun County and Fairfax County, Virginia, two richest school districts in the country, the fight there is intense. Talk about tens of millions of dollars of resources at the school board's, board's disposal. The fight is going to be intense. And what are they doing there? Well, they're doxing parents. They're pu- publishing parents' addresses. They're pushing, putting kids' names on these lists to harass them. Children. They will fight like the devil. These, by the way, are not good people. They are not supporting Dr. Martin Luther King's vision that we're not allowed to invoke anymore, according to critical race theorist nutjobs. We're not allowed to appeal to that. So these are not good people. You have to be ready for a long-term fight. You have to be ready to push back. You have to be willing to endure the consequences. Yeah, you're gonna get called names. You might get sued, like my friend Nicole Solas in, in Rhode Island. She put in a Freedom of Information Act request to see what was being taught in her kid's kindergarten. Not only would they not tell her, the school, the school board sued her. And then when they finally delivered the request, they redacted every, they blacked out every single word of the entire thing. Said, whoops, it's all private. Luckily, she's an attorney. So she's happy to have been sued. And she's now taking them to court and winning. And she says to people around the country. Now she goes around and tells people, she's a regular mom. She goes around and tells people, you have to invite the lawsuit because that's one of your few tools. The law is one of your few tools to fight back at this. So you have to be willing. Do you have that courage? Do you have the courage to get on a school board? Do you have the courage to stand up, get a lawyer and sue these people for what they're doing to your children? It's very important. But I'm supposed to give you the nuts and bolts of critical race theory, so I'm not gonna linger on what to do and how ugly the fight is. I'm just going to dive right in. So their goal is to raise a critical consciousness of race in everybody that they possibly can. I'll tell you more about why as we progress, But I want to tell you what this entails. So I don't like to misrepresent my uh, opponents or anybody, as a matter of fact, when they say something. So one of the things I like to do, and I've done this throughout your wonderful state and now a few cities. By the way, did you know that critical race theory technically started here in Wisconsin? Boo. It started in, okay, Madison. What a shock. What a shock. It started in Madison. There was this meeting there in 1989. And this guy, Richard Delgado, was there. I'm about to read from his book. And then this, he's, he's, he had this interview in the 90s talking about the foundational meeting in right outside of the, the U of Wisconsin campus. And he describes to the interviewer, they say, well, what was it like founding? And he says, well, I was there at the foundational meeting. And he kind of just says, we were trying to figure out if we had anything in common. It was kind of happening. People were kind of dipping into race issues within, you know, the critical legal studies movement, as it was called. We wanted to see if we could come up with a name for what we were doing and kind of band together. And he says, we, we actually got together, he said, in a convent. He says, it was an austere room, stained glass. Those are his actual words. He says, it was an austere room with stained glass and crucifixes here and there. That's a quote. And then he, sa- he adds, an odd setting for a bunch of Marxists. That's what he said. And he said that they were, they were doing it in Madison because there was lots of sympathy there for it. So Madison, there you go. Marxists, gotcha. Um, I, I've learned, by the way, by keep coming back to Wisconsin, how people outside Madison feel about Madison. So I'm just going to like hammer Madison. It's fun. Yeah, I'm from Tennessee, so you know we hate Memphis. Um, it's actually part of Mississippi. Nobody knows that. Um, what are you going to do? So this odd group of Marxists gathered to come up with a new theory. And a few years later, this Richard Delgado character, by the way, among uh, Christian was talking about a woman named Kimberly Crenshaw. She's considered the founder of critical race theory. She gave critical race theory its name. Um, She is named by Richard Delgado as one of those Marxists. We've talked about CNN, but now on MSNBC is the, the news media um uh the propaganda is for this recently Kimberly Crenshaw herself is still alive she went on Joy Reed's show yeah yay joy boo uh, she went on Joy Ann Reed's show and joy asked her straight to her face is critical race theory marxist and she she got this smile and said well what you need to understand is it's a way of looking at the world and she never actually answered but she's named as a Marxist by one of her colleagues in that interview specifically. So yes, and she was lying because she knows. She knows the American people will hate it if it's known to be true. But what are they trying to program your kids with? So this is from Richard Delgado, I just named him. He's the one that was interviewed that said, we were a bunch of Marxists in Madison making up critical race theory. He wrote a book in 2001 titled Critical Race Theory and Introduction. It was written for high school students, by the way, because it's not in schools. In 2001, they were writing a book for high school students. And he has the first page of the book is, What is Critical Race Theory? And he says, the Critical Race Theory movement is a collection of activists and scholars interested in studying and transforming the relationship among race, racism, and power. And if you're getting a little familiar with how Marxists think power is at the center of everything. Before I go any further though, I wanna pause and tell you what these words mean. You may have noticed that critical race theorists and other Marxists don't use words the normal way. There's a saying about this actually, that Marxists share your vocabulary, but they don't share your dictionary. They've got specialized definitions. So Let me just bounce out of Delgado, I'll come back to him and read to you the definition of race on the Brandeis University Social Justice Dictionary website. This is what they mean by race in critical race theory. So you're probably thinking it has something to do with skin color. You're probably thinking, you know, something maybe about different populations in the world or from Africa or from Asia or from Europe or from whatever, ethnic heritage, blah, blah, blah. No, race is defined in critical race theory as, remember, this is the middle word, the operative word of critical race theory, A misleading and deceptively appealing classification of human beings created by white people originally from Europe, which assigns human worth and social status using the white racial identity as the archetype of humanity for the purpose of creating and maintaining privilege, power, and systems of oppression. That ain't skin color, folks. These people are lying to us badly. Badly. This is the frame that they say that history has to be taught through. That white people originally from Europe created the idea of race so that they can assign human worth and social status using the white racial identity as the archetype for humanity so they can maintain their own privilege. When they say that they want to talk about race and program your children to think about race and the relevance of race to everything, that's what they mean. It explicitly scapegoats white people as creating a hierarchy of power that advantages themselves. So when they say they want to talk about changing the relationship among race, racism, and power, that's what they want to program your children with, that's what they want to turn your church into, that's what they want to turn your workplace into an instrument to create more of. This is not a good ideology by any stretch, but let's continue. Delgado continues, he says, the movement considers many of the same issues that conventional civil rights and ethnic studies discourses take up, but places them in a broader perspective. Why do they have to? Dis- why do they have to distinguish? You have to ask yourself: Why are? Tra- what? Why? What's different about traditional civil rights? They need a new civil rights. Apparently, they're not continuing the civil rights movement like they say. Whoa, well, they're lying. How about that? He says it has to be placed in a broader con- perspective, including economics, history, context, group and self-interest, and even feelings and the unconscious. That's how they read your mind. That's how they know that that thing that you did was racist even when it wasn't. That's why Matt's racist for having been here. He has unconscious racial biases. You've heard that. That's probably at your workplace. They're definitely teaching your kids that there are unconscious racial biases. Even the unconscious, it can read your mind. An example I give of this mentality, how critical race theory thinks and how it reads minds is, imagine, I've given this analogy many times, happy to give it to you, imagine that you enter you work at a store and two people enter at the same time one is white one is black and you have to choose who to help first you're the only one working at the store that day who do you pick i've not yet found an audience in the last few years who will dare say the white person or they even say that it doesn't matter instead almost everybody says black if i make them answer well guess what if you're doing a critical race analysis you pick the black person because you're a racist because you don't trust black people to be in your store unattended. So you had to serve them first and get them out. There's the racist mind reading that they were able to do by reading into your unconscious. And if you picked the white person and thought you could get away, of course you didn't get away. You think white people are first class citizens and black people are second class citizens. So the black person had to wait. So you were racist. No way out. That's a manipulation. That's not an analysis. That is a manipulation. This is a manipulative ideology, and they want to teach your children to think this way about the world. It's their primary objective right now. They lost the popular fight. Everybody's, like the George Floyd energy, fell apart. The popular front, as they call it in Marxist theory, has lost its energy. It's now happening institutionally. They want to create a racial red guard and tantamount to the Chinese Cultural Revolution and your, chil- and your children. So if they push that line again, your children will be calling you racist and turning on you just like so many of them did in the summer of 2020. Mine did too. Unlike traditional civil rights, Delgado tells us, again, they have to distinguish, which in- embraces incrementalism and step-by-step progress. So critical race theory doesn't use traditional methods. It doesn't use incrementalism or step-by-step progress. So you don't move in increments, you don't move in pieces, you don't move in steps, you have to turn the whole thing over at once. We call it revolution. It is a revolutionary movement, a revolutionary ideology. Unlike traditional civil rights, we want a civil rights, in quotes, revolution. And they say critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order. And I'm not talking Democrats here. I mean what Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and people like John Locke, writing from England, set up in the, the, the what we call the West, the, the broad, enlightenment-based liberal order. They question it at its very foundations. What do they question? Including equality theory. So the idea that all men are created equal. Out. Legal reasoning. That's the idea that the rule of law should be used. Out. Enlightenment rationalism, the idea that we can use our minds and any human being can think their way through, present their evidence, analyze the situation, give the best argument, out. And the neutral principles of constitutional law. So when President Trump said this is an anti-American ideology or non-American ideology, and he got burned for it by the media, guess what? The media was lying again. Fake news. He was right. Trump was right, turns out to be a thing. Although critical race theory began as a movement in law, it has rapidly spread beyond that discipline, Delgado tells us, in 2001. Today, many of the field of education consider themselves critical race theorists. 2001, we have a book written for high school students saying that education's already full of critical race theory 20 years ago, and they dare to go on television and lie to our faces and say, no, it's just in law school. This sentence, on the first Page of a book titled Critical Race Theory and Introduction, written at a high school level, shows their lie. Today, many of the in the field of education consider themselves critical race theorists who use critical race theory's ideas to understand issues of school discipline and hierarchy. Isn't that true? They don't discipline anybody anymore, lest they be called racists. Tracking controversies over curriculum and history and IQ and achievement testing. So, we're going to get rid of standardized tests. We're going to get rid of the SAT. We're going to get rid of the ACT. We're going to get rid of advanced placement classes. We're going to get rid of honors. What is it? Uh, Gifted and talented. I always get screwed up. It was called talented and gifted when I was a kid back in the 80s when everybody would say tag and we were called the tag kids and they'd knock us down on the playground. (laughs) I'm glad they kind of switched that one around. Political scientists ponder voting strategies coined by critical race theorists. Oh, Stacey Abrams is in this book. What about it? I mean, maybe I should make a joke about California right now. I don't know. Maybe it's a, a, my, my Stacey Abrams joke is old. Ethnic studies courses often include a unit on critical race theory. I was just in Southern California speaking before the Orange County School Board. And as it turns out, ethnic studies is being mandated for the entire state of California, and it's full of critical race theory. If you don't know what's going on there, and by the way, Southern California, you'd think, oh, a bunch of liberals, blah, blah, blah. No, the energy in that Southern California room was unbelievable against critical race theory. Angry parents of every race you can imagine in that room, yelling, hooping, hollering, standing up, crying at the podium, screaming. It's online. You can actually look it up and watch it from the school board meeting from uh, August 24th or something. You can look it up. Very moving testimony. You saw another one in uh, outside of Sacramento, maybe if you were paying attention to what's going on in school boards, where the teacher is literally bringing Antifa and overthrowing the country into the classroom. The parents there are livid. He was finally exposed. Parents there are livid. Even in California, which just kept Newsome. <sighs> Even in California, they hate critical race theory because it's so bad. But yeah, it's in your schools. For sure. Um, unlike some academic disciplines, they say, critical race theory contains an activist dimension. That's right, to train your children to be activists for critical race theory. And not only, and this is the key right here, it not only tries to understand our social situation, but to change it. Do you know who he's paraphrasing here? Karl Marx, who said that the point of studying society is not to understand it, but to change it. It sets out not only to ascertain how society organizes itself along racial lines and hierarchies but how to transform it for the better so now i think we've established that this is rooted in marx on the first page the guy's talking about all these marxian ideas terrible interpretation of what race means tons of lies about it which is a total communist thing to do and then we have him paraphrasing marx as the point of critical race theory at the end of the second paragraph of the book so Where did critical race theory ultimately come from then? Marx, or at least we're gonna go back that far. We can go back further, but we'll start there. It is a Marxian theory. In the words of another education theorist named Gloria Ladson Billings, in 1995, she wrote a paper called Toward a Critical Race Theory of Education. She said the point of critical race theory is to make race the central construct for understanding all inequality, which echoes something almost exactly we heard from Christian from other critical race theorists, Mary Matsuda and uh, Kimberly Crenshaw. to make race the central construct for understanding all inequality. So I wanna kind of map out how we got from from Marx, which is all about economic class, to race, because it's actually a story that can be told, but nobody will tell it. I've had to piece it together the hard way. And so Marx had this crazy set of ideas uh, about how history progresses. And it turns out critical race theory has a similar set of ideas about how history progresses. Marx believed that the march of history followed a particular path and it was definitely going to go that way, and it was just a matter of time until the conditions were made right and this would happen. It unfolds in six stages. The first stage is this kind of primitive communism where everybody's in tribes, and within a tribe, everybody shares, but the tribes don't interact with each other. They stay apart unless they go to war. It's not ideal. Later, some of the tribes figure out how to dominate one another, and they, they, they establish a slave economy where one tribe enslaves another, forces them to do all the labor, etc. A third stage eventually develop, develops where... People say that they want the protection of powerful lords and kings, and they establish a feudal estate economy where you have you know, massive castles and mansions and fields that are held by a lord, and everybody's a serf, which is slightly better, but not much better than being a slave, and works for the lord in exchange for protection, etc. Eventually, people figure out that if you could just have your own private property, and this is John Locke, who I mentioned a moment ago, writing that, that if people had their own property rights, that things could be a lot different. They could take care of their own. They could be responsible for their own. They could grow in their own. And we don't have to pledge fealty to a Lord that maybe is good, maybe is bad, maybe is abusive. Capitalism grows out of this. So I mentioned Locke, but we also have Adam Smith writing this in the, the 18th century, laying out these ideas that became capitalism. And Marx saw capitalism as still abusive. He said it still contains its own contradictions. And inside those contradictions, for example, you have all this wealth generation by capitalism. All these people are getting rich. There's all this great stuff, but there are still poor people. There are still people who are disenfranchised from the system. There are still people who are being exploited by the system. They show up to work, they're grossly underpaid, they work in unsafe conditions, etc. And in Marx's day, industrial capitalism, I mean, f- fairly called, that's true. Not that Marx was right, but he was right about that. Capitalism was very abusive in the 1850s. It wasn't a good time yet. We hadn't figured things out. And so Marx said, you have to overthrow capitalism for another stage. I'll actually read to you. A lot of people haven't read the Communist Manifesto, but in chapter two, he writes, and this is your, your transition from the feudal estates into capitalism, and then what he says about it. He says, the French Revolution, which by the way is really bloody and, and terrible, abolished feudal property in favor of bourgeois property. So he defines a new kind of property where feudal property, the kings, et cetera, the lords, the lords, the, all of the, the, the kind of royalty no longer own all the property, but now the fancy rich bourgeois capitalists own the property. And he says, the distinguishing feature of communism is not the abolition of property generally, but the abolition of bourgeois property. But modern bourgeois private property is the final and most complete expression of the system of producing and appropriating products that is based on class antagonisms on the exploitation of the many by the few. In this sense, the theory of the communists may be summed up in the single sentence, abolition of private property, which by the way, is not a sentence. Just, I mean, maybe you wrote it in German, so maybe it's okay, but there's no verb. I'm just saying. So. Abolish private property, and then what? Well, Marx's idea was that the working class could be awakened into a thing called the proletariat that has class consciousness. So Marxist theory exists to do one thing, like a paperclip machine, make people have class consciousness. So they will overthrow the bourgeoisie. They will overthrow the capitalist class. They will seize the means of production, and they will establish what he called a dictatorship of the proletariat. The dictatorship of the proletariat will usher in under its iron rule an era called socialism that will distribute equally and fairly all of the production of society until all of the complications work themselves out and they finally figure out you don't need a state to manage this because everybody's on the same page and the state will magically dissolve itself in a perfect state called communism at the end of history that's where communism comes from, a stateless, classless society where the state becomes redundant because everybody's on the same page. Everybody believes the same crooked religion. The critical theorists believe roughly the same thing, but they've taken class out and they've made race the central construct for understanding all inequality. Okay, what do they think? Well, originally, and you hear them talk about how great it was back in the tribal times when there was no racism. But then some tribes figured out how to conquer one another and they established slavery, which is a form of racial domination. And then eventually abolition came along, the moral failure of slavery was exposed and after abolition we ended up in this kind of estate kind of segregated society. You have the upper class and the lower class, you have the whites and the blacks, you have some form of apartheid, a segregated society. You'll notice they're trying to bring us back to one of those and it's supposed to be good somehow. And eventually though, people would say, This isn't fair. Segregation and apartheid are evil. Jim Crow is evil. Institutional racism is evil. We reject this. We have a civil rights movement and we enter into a phase of colorblind equality where every person is an individual to be based on the content of their character, which is the same as everybody having their own property rights in a sense, where you have your own and you get to do with your own what you will. Now you're your own person and you get to be treated accordingly. And then the critical racers come along and say colorblind equality is actually, by the way, the problem. That is actually the central thesis of critical race theory. Colorblind equality maintains inequities, is what they say. There are not equal outcomes. We have equality on the front end, but equality is not coming out the back end. And as Ibram Kendi, one of their prophets, likes to say, you either think there's something wrong with the system or you must think there's something wrong with the people, implying that you're a racist in that case. And so they want to abolish Colorblind equality. Remember, they reject equality theory. They reject the neutral principles of constitutional law. They reject the universality of the scientific method, which Christian talked about, where anybody can do the experiment because they reject Enlightenment rationalism. Everything has to be analyzed in terms of power. What you say is only meaningful in terms of who you are. They have a phrase for this. They call it engaging positionality. Your position against the social structures of power in society. And so what do they wanna do? Well, if I look back at this Marx thing, and it says the distinguishing feature of communism is not the abolition of all property, but bourgeois property, and we just change it a little bit, it becomes really clear. The distinguishing feature of critical race theory is not the abolition of property generally, but the abolition of whiteness as bourgeois property. There's actually a paper, it's landmark in critical race theory from 1993 by Cheryl Harris, called Whiteness as Property why would they characterize whiteness as a form of property unless to abolish it as the bourgeois property? Why? Because, as Marx says, but, and I'll change the words, but modern whiteness is the final and most complete expression of the system of producing and appropriating cultural products that is based on racial class antagonisms on the exploitation of the minorities by the whites just change a few words it's exactly what critical race theory is preaching in this sense the theory of critical race theory may be summed up in the single sentence abolition of whiteness am i wrong of course i'm not this is what critical race theory is about so we're going to now have the critical race theorists the anti-racists as they call themselves are going to rise up awaken a racial consciousness and every single person like a class consciousness and every single person they're aware of these racial class antagonisms, and they're going to seize power and create a dictatorship, not of the proletariat, but of the anti-racists. And I'll read to you from high High priest Kendi, Ibram Kendi, whose real name is Henry Rogers. He was asked in 2019 to explain how to fix inequality. Remember, race is the central construct for understanding all inequality, according to critical race theory. How does he say to do it? To fix the original sin of racism, Americans should pass an anti-racist amendment to the U.S. Constitution. He wrote this in Politico magazine. That enshrines two guiding anti-racist principles, which he misspelled. Racial inequity is evidence of racist policy. Differences in outcomes must have been racism as a constitutional amendment. This is what America will believe at its foundational level from here on out if he gets his pow- this power. And the different racial groups are equals. The amendment would make unconstitutional racial inequity over a certain threshold, as well as racist ideas by public officials. Too much difference in outcome or ideas considered racist? That's unconstitutional now, if he gets this power. It would establish and permanently fund the Department of Anti-Racism, DOA. I mean, come on. Dictatorship of Anti-Racists. What were you thinking, right? Dead on arrival, right? Um, Comprised of who? Formally trained experts on racism and no political appointees. In other words, critical race theorists are now going to run a department of anti-racism that has constitutional authority to bust down on every bit of unconstitutional difference in outcomes, on average, or racist ideas. The DOA he says would be responsible for pre-clearing all local, state and federal public policies to ensure they won't yield racial inequity. All policy in all levels will be now put under this unaccountable fourth branch of government. Run by critical race theorists, sounds like a dictatorship to me. But it gets worse. Monitor those policies he says, investigate private racist policies when racial inequity surfaces. So Your private company, also unconstitutional if it produces differences. And monitor public officials for expressions of racist ideas. That's control of your thought. This is a dictatorship. The DOA, the dictatorship of anti-racists, would be empowered with disciplinary tools to wield over and against policymakers and public officials who do not voluntarily change their racist policy and ideas. That's what they're actually after. Dictatorship of the anti racists Why? Because they can install a race socialism that they call racial equity. You've probably heard that. That's probably what you hear as a justification for why your school has to be full of critical race theory. Because we need equity. Racial equity. It's the equivalent of socialism. And it will be managed through this fifth stage of racial history by a dictatorship of anti-racists who are going to control everything down to your thought with constitutional authority. All law on all levels. This is what they want. This is what they're indoctrinating your children to support. And then the sixth stage of history will finally arrive. Racial justice, which is the equivalent of communism, but for race. We know that it's different because we saw when Derek Chauvin, for example, was sentenced, or sorry, was convicted of all three charges, AOC, Bernie Sanders, etc., immediately, within minutes or on social media and traditional media, bleeding. This isn't justice, this is accountability. We have a lot more work to do to get to justice. Justice means communism for these people. Racial justice means communism with race centered as the primary axis under which all inequality is to be understood. This is what critical race theory is about. It meshes exactly with what Christian told, I didn't know what Christian was gonna say, meshes exactly with what he said, quoting other critical race theorists. This is critical race theory. It is race Marxism. So all three words then, we already heard about race, all three words in critical race theory are a misleading lie. Theory means Marxian theory. It means the principles of race, sorry, class antagonism of Marx under what's called conflict theory applied across race. That's what the theory, it doesn't mean scientific theory. It is not a scientific theory. It's barely a social theory. It means Marxist theory using race. Race, we already heard is, I should just read that again. That's so mental. It's literally insane what they think the word race means. A misleading and deceptively appealing classification of human beings created by white people originally from Europe, which assigns human worth and social status using the white racial identity as the archetype of humanity for the purpose of creating and maintaining privileged power, and systems of oppression. Downright evil. So critical is also a lie because it means to use the critical theory method, which is the only piece of this history I haven't added yet. So what? how did we get from Marx's abolition of private property to critical race theories, abolition of whiteness. And it turns out there is a trajectory that takes us that way through history. And this is what's called, there's this thing that that arose in the 1920s called the Frankfurt School, which was actually the Institute of Social Research at Goethe University in Frankfurt, Germany. They're generally known as the neo-Marxists. They invented a new type of Marxism. What they did is they, they looked at Marx and they said Marx was wrong. And when you hear I cannot tell you, There's, I'm a very even-keeled guy. I am normally almost like disabled in terms of my inability to get emotionally worked up about stuff. A little on the spectrum. When I figured out what the neo-Marxists were mad about, I, I can't express the level of disgust for these people and all who have followed in their wake. They created what's known as the New Left, by the way, which means almost all of leftism since the 1960s has been neo-Marxist. And what they said is they said Marx was wrong. I can quote directly almost from from Max Horkheimer, one of the the leading lights of that movement. In an interview he gave in 1969, he said, Marx predicted that capitalism would make make people miserable. It would immiserate the society to come closer to the actual quote. But what we learn is that this society doesn't immiserate the worker. It lets them build a better life. That's what they're pissed off about. It lets them build a better life. How dare you have a decent life and not be a Marxist revolutionary because you're so miserable? How dare you enjoy your job to the degree that the job's enjoyable? Make money and buy and do things with your money that bring your life meaning and happiness. How dare you? You should be in squalor, and misery, so that you will be able to be radicalized into a Marxist revolutionary. That's what they thought. And so Herbert Marcuse, another one of these neo-Marxists, in fact, the director of the Frankfurt School in the 60s, writing in also 1969 in a book called An Essay on Liberation, writes that what we need is a new working class. The real working class, he says, has been stabilized. The society is functional and prosperous. It works for these people. And he says to be sure, It gives them a good life. But then he says it's not communism. It's not the utopia. And because it gives them a good life, that means you, you can't even imagine that there's a better life if we could just go to communism. And so he openly says we have to abandon the working class as the revolutionary energy, and we have to switch. We need to find a new working class, a new proletariat. And he said, I find that energy in the ghetto population of this country. So you have this evil neo-Marxist communist, Herbert Marcuse, trying to figure out how to be able to get a Marxist revolution through the 1960s because boo-hoo, our society works too well. It stabilizes people. It makes them happy. The society is functional and prosperous. It lets people build a better life. That's the problem. So what are we gonna do? He says, I know, let's use the blacks. I'm gonna put it very bluntly, let's use the blacks. And how are we gonna get the blacks to know what to do to be Marxian revolutionaries? Well, we'll use the radicalized student population. That's what he says, we need to get the students, the college students, the young middle-class college students. And then you have to figure out how do you cross that class divide? And the answer turned out to be white guilt. And now you have an army of little overeducated brats going and telling black people how they're supposed to think, or they're not really politically black anymore. Isn't that exactly what happened? He also, that's exactly what happened. And so critical race theory grew out of that energy. How do I know? Well, Kimberly Crenshaw, the one who gave it its name, what did she say? Well, we were, these people, by the way, Marcusa, Max Horkheimer, I know these are remote philosophical names, were called critical theorists. The thing they developed is called critical theory, critical race theory. She says, how did we get the name critical race theory? She's like, well, we were critical theorists who were interested in racial justice. and We were racial justice advocates who did critical theory. So the name was a natural pick. She took these ideas and said exactly this in her most famous paper, Mapping the Margins from 1989, or no, 1991. And she said in in, in Mapping the Margins that she said, the problem is, is we need a meaningful politics of identity. You can't take a few disparate voices and have a movement that changes the world. You have to have solidarity. And so she has this very fateful paragraph at the end of that paper. And this paper is instrumental in the creation of critical race theory. Like I said, 1991, just after the creation of critical race theory down here in Madison. Madison. (laughs) And she says there's a fundamental difference between. Remember, we're not allowed to use Martin Luther King anymore, right? to go against critical race theory. She says there's a fundamental difference between the statements, I am black and I am a person who happens to be black. You see, she says, I am a person who happens to be black ignores that race is imposed by the white people who set it up as the archetype of humanity. It's imposed. And therefore, it makes the mistake, I am a person who happens to be black, makes the mistake of thinking you can put the person first. That you can, she says it strains for a certain universality across the races, strains for a certain universality that she thinks doesn't exist. She says, on the other hand, I am black, provides a subjective sense of self, that it it gives you the grounds for a meaningful politics of identity. She taps straight into literally the black power movement to justify this. So she says that we should shy away from I am a person who happens to be black, which is exactly, by the way, in 1968 at the, the mechanics uh, protest in Memphis, which I guess it's Tennessee now because something cool happened. Um, the mechanic, the, 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 the racial protest there with Martin Luther King there were carrying signs. They said, I am a man. They didn't say I am black. They said, I'm a man. They were trying to strain, they were straining for that universality that was actually being denied to them in the 60s, that we actually overcame First through the the, the struggles of the 1960s, the Civil Rights Acts 64, 68, the Voting Rights Acts of 65, we overcame those challenges, and then we entered into a new paradigm, and it didn't, racism didn't evaporate, obviously, there's still tons of racism after the Civil Rights Acts were passed, but now there was no institutional legal, institutional racism in this country anymore, there was no systemic racism anymore. So they make the system this fluffy thing that's like everything that happens in culture and how you think about stuff and all this other weird crap that's made up. Because there was none, there was none. And so Crenshaw in the creation of critical race theory and intersectionality explicitly repudiates the civil rights movement just like we heard from Delgado in the beginning where he says, unlike traditional approaches to civil rights, which he should have said, which put the person first, critical race theory does something different besides being revolutionary It puts race first. It gets it exactly backwards. And again, let me just circle this back for you. This is what they are programming your children to think in school. This is why this is the fight of our lives. We must stop them from teaching our kids to be little communist racists. And the fight isn't going to be easy. Matt already talked about that. It was good. I'm not going to like try to give you... I'm not really great at like what to do. Like Show up. Get organized. Everything he said, get get educated and organized. Or, what was it? Get educated, get organized, take action, and win. I don't remember what the fourth one was. So it's just win. Just do it. Get on the school boards, et cetera. What I want to... I got to ask... You know, Kevin mentioned that we did a podcast right before this, and he asked me a question. And he said, well, what gives you hope? And I... Bumbled around for a second because he caught me off guard. I think my answer is pretty eloquent, though. And I eventually landed on three words. The American people. That's what gives me hope. We have the right principles. So we can look back at these same neo-Marxists and the cultural Marxists before them. I didn't talk about them, but they existed too. And they understood something about America that we've forgotten, which is that the cultural backbone of America repels communism. And so they set out to systematically get inside of institutions like schools and churches and family, media, law. They sought to get in them and to turn them over from within. To undermine them, to subvert them, to turn them into racist paperclip makers. And they knew that if they could change the culture away from American values, away from equality theory, Away from the idea that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Rights endowed by the creator that precede the state. They are not, what's the other word? Privileges. They know what they're doing. They knew that if they could get in and flip that culture over, that they could tear America apart from the inside. And they knew race was the weakest spot in this country. They've known that for over 100 years. And they've manipulated and worked their way in. And these. College professors, starting with Marcuse's push in the 1960s, figured out that if you take over the colleges and you take over especially the teaching colleges, then you can start educating or miseducating, I should say, programming a generation of revolutionaries. And that's exactly what they did. And they took over media. They're taking over law. They haven't fully succeeded. But a lot of how is all this DEI stuff legal? Because they changed the jurisprudence to favor disparate impact, which is exactly what was in Kendi's thing, rather than intention to see if discrimination occurred. That's how. You change that back, you say that you have to have intention, then you've made a big stride. That's a big job for some big smart lawyers who can put together a smart legal strategy to overturn that bad jurisprudence. It is possible, though. They understood, though, that if they could subvert American values and the means by which American values are transmitted from one generation to the next, that they could bring America to communism exactly like they had dreamed of for 100 years. Which means the antidote is unapologetically embracing American values. They say we should reject equality. No, we should favor equality. We should champion equality. We should be happy about equality. They say we should Reject the rule of law? Absolutely not. They wanna have two sets of rule books, two sets of laws, one for them, one for us. Absolutely not. Equality before the law, neutrality of constitutional law. They say we're gonna reject enlightenment rationalism. And this is a big one. We say no. Everybody can think for themselves. Everybody's an individual. Everybody can make their own decisions and act in their talents and their character. We're gonna judge people that way. Sorry, you're wrong. We're not going down that road. We are not going back to that place. So that's an unapologetic thing. We can look at the values that they reject utterly and embrace them enthusiastically. Truth, excellence, joy. Enjoy your life. They want you to be miserable. Accelerate the contradictions was a statement from Lenin, which meant to make people starve, make them miserable enough so the revolution could proceed. Enjoy your life. They don't want you to be able to like your football team They don't want you to like your work. They don't want you to like anything about your life. By sticking this stuff in there, find things that you love and love them and share them. Forgive. They don't forgive. Somebody tweeted something 14 years old and then it's strategically valuable for them. They dig it up and blow them up out of their career. People make mistakes. We're all living a tough life. So we come together as a team, not as a collective. We don't purge the dissident. We try to meet people where they are, embrace those same values that made America great in the first place, embrace them unapologetically. Here's a big one, responsibility, which is paired with liberty. You ever met a responsible woke person? I mean, what's the joke been? Why are they out protesting? I don't know. These people might be great, but it's because they don't have jobs. That's the joke, right? Responsibility and wokeness don't go together. I'll tell you about a friend of mine that runs a company, just to kind of give you another last message of hope that this can be done so if you run a company or know somebody runs a company pass this message along the woke people would come and say i don't think we're doing enough to get enough say you know whatever racial minority or whatever trans or whatever in in we're not diverse enough right whatever and he said he's smart guy brilliant guy and he, he looked right at every every one of these little complainers that came in his office and said we're not doing enough to encourage racial diversity he said great that's your job now you have six months or you're fired they all quit they didn't even try. They just quit. They don't like responsibility. So in, for, if you have the power in a working position, force them to take responsibility. If you have the power over the government that governs with your consent, although they're not going to make it easy, force them to take responsibility, force that transparency, force that you know freedom of information, put them in the media, make them embarrassed, show up again and again and again, organized, educated and ready and force them to take responsibility. They don't like it. They don't want transparency. They also don't want responsibility. And they aren't focused on liberty because they don't believe in liberty. They don't believe in individuals. They believe in a collective. They believe in racial collectives. In fact, racial collectives that operate through a concept that they're almost like their own nation, right? Capital B Black. They excommunicate you if you say the wrong thing. White people need to have a white consciousness that's never a positive racial identity. That's Robin DiAngelo. It's like a racial country that's filled with shame. They think about race like little countries. Reject that. You can have black friends. That's a joke. No, no, you really can. That was a very awkward joke. Let's go back to the paper clips. But this is what you have to know about critical race theory, okay? So I'll just wrap up with that. Critical race theory is the attempt to induce this horrible way of thinking into your children. It has one mission and one mission only, which is to create as many critical race theorists as possible out of any material it can take, or an institution to make more critical race theorists out of new new material. It will run every single resource in your uh, institution to the ground. If it takes over your company, everything not dedicated to promoting critical race theory is a waste of money. So it'll run you right. They don't care about your product. They don't care about your customers. They don't care about your relationships. They don't care about the office climate. Everything has to be about making critical race theories. And the goal is to get just barely enough of them to establish their dictatorship of the anti-racist so that we enter a racial equity paradigm, which Biden is trying to force upon us and all the blue states are attempting. And we can't go that way. That's their goal. We must stop them. We must get it out of the schools. You must not be afraid of the consequences to stand up and you should stand up unapologetically embracing American values because those are actually the antidote. We have to remember who we are as a people, as the American people. We have to remember that E Pluribus Unum is the best diversity, equity, and inclusion program the world ever came up with. Out of many, one. Equal access for all. That's what they say. They lie and say equity is about equal access, not equal outcomes. Well, there you go. E Pluribus Unum, it's on every coin. It's not hard to find. We need to remember that our American republic was founded on the values that repel communism and we have to remember what those are and absolutely unapologetically share those with everybody and live them in our day-to-day life thank you i'm kevin nicholson thanks for joining us today on the right idea podcast Make sure to subscribe to the Right Idea podcast on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, Google, Ricochet, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts.